Well, uh, I'm gonna have to do. I'm gonna do a little improv. Where uh, a quarter till, and usually about five afters, when I wind up uh, a service to begin to do prayer ministry time. And uh, you know, it, it, you may not know this, but the shorter a sermon, the longer the prep time. Did you know that? It it, it is true. And so every time I've run over, I'm busted. Um, but I'm just going to introduce you to what we're doing and see if I can get through. Uh, I'm going to preview one point that we'll, uh, I believe Jake is going to tease out more next week. All right. So we are going to do a series on my favorite book, which, by the way, if you haven't heard me, anytime we do a book study, I always say my favorite book. <laughs> but I don't think I said that in front of Obadiah. It was a little short. Kind of. You know, but, but my favorite book probably is Matthew. It's the first sermon series I remember being preached after my parents found Jesus. And the pastor went through a couple verses each time and spent like three and a half years going through it. And I'm like the ADD poster child that couldn't even keep focused during an entire episode of HR Puff and Stuff or Land of the Lost. That's how uh, my... Uh, attention span work, but I actually paid attention whenever this guy preached because the story just gripped me because the story is just that powerful. And, and since I've heard people slice and dice Matthew in certain ways and dissect it in certain ways that the heartbeat isn't there anymore. And if, if, if you've heard Matthew in a boring way that doesn't inspire you to courageous, loving, kind action, it's not the book, it's you just did it wrong. You were led to do it wrong or did it wrong because Matthew is inspiring. And, uh, but we're gonna do what I've been calling a mega series. And that is, the people, Matthew was written to the Jewish people that had a couple thousand year old tradition of interacting with God and they had the Tanakh, which was the Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, which formed what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures. And most of them knew huge chunks of it by heart. The longest book, the book of Psalms, which I like to think is the thickest lyric sheet ever. Like if they released a Psalms box set, it'd have to have a whole big hardcover book of it with lyrics. And they would, every one or two weeks doing the daily prayers, they would pray, pray through the entire book, which meant that's the same as having your MP3 playlist on repeat, knowing listen to the same series of songs for your whole life which meant they know the book by heart. In fact, so much that was read in the services was known by heart. So we are at, if we just read Matthew and look at Matthew, we're gonna miss a lot of the zing, zang, zum, bing, bang, boom that comes through the book because if a name from the Old Testament is mentioned, people automatically have, oh, I know that story. Just like, who here has a very weird relative that has made otherwise boring holidays very memorable? Anyone? All right. And Lynn would say, yeah, and it's you, Jeff. <laughs> I'm sorry I streaked your wedding. Okay. Sorry about prophylactics to church, mom. <laughs> you know, uh, what? Many more stories. Um, anyway. Uh, you have that family member that does something no one can ever forget. Well, the family true of the Hebrew people is full of stories you can never forget. And when you read the genealogy that begins the book of Matthew, that's shorthand for a bunch of stories. So we're going to take 
several week series on the genealogy of Jesus, which is the part people normally skip. But you don't skip it because it's the cliff notes of a greater story. So we're going to spend time teasing out the story. And what we love about the genealogy of Jesus is uh, genealogies were not like Western legal documents, all right? They were greatest hits of a family. If you brought any embarrassment to a family, your generation would be skipped. Because in the language, the word son, grandson, father, or forefather, it's kind of the same word. So you can, whether you're grandpa, great-grandpa, or dad, you're the same guy in an ancient Near Eastern genealogy. So for people to try to figure out exact dates of how old, whatever, this, you know, usher or whatever, it's like, yeah, you can't take the way we write genealogies now, stick it in a TARDIS and go back several thousand years and make it apply to that. It just won't work. But the genealogy is unique in all Near Eastern literature in that it is focused. I mean, this was tabloids before tabloids. It focused on the embarrassments of a nation. And the neat thing about the Hebrew Bible is it's not propaganda because it shows people at their worst. And it's bizarre that you can read about shame and deception and sibling rivalries and broken marriages and affairs in the old books of the Bible in the Old Testament and say, wow, this sounds like what happened to my friends. Or this is like what it was like in my family. There was so much favoritism. It's bizarre that despite this alien, crazy culture, we find so much to relate to. That doesn't mean there's not heavy lifting to do to understand the culture of a primeval narrative. I mean, if you want to understand what it was like to be a child growing up during World War II in the United States of America, you've got a lot of work to do. How much more with a primeval narrative of cultures across. So even though there's so much to relate to, there's alien stuff. And what happens is when people skip over talking about the cultural stuff, um, we derive the wrong intent from the scripture. Uh, in fact, uh, it, the genealogy of Matthew begins, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, who was uh, the Savior, the Messiah. And the word is Genesis. This is the Genesis, and uh, the book of Matthew is like kind of a tribute to the Torah, but it one-ups the Torah because it's broken up to five sections, the Torah's five books, and it begins with Genesis, all right? And it, it, it recapitulates the law in terms of through the lens of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is basically like Moses, but a lot better. Jesus is like super Moses. He gives us the law, and the law is written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So Genesis is just this book of so many layers of genius. I mean, uh, Matthew. And so Matthew begins by saying this is the Genesis of Christ, meaning we're going to summarize then in this chapter the whole of the Hebrew Scriptures and give you context to understand it. And I love how the author of Hebrews says, you know, before the revelation of Jesus, we had a revelation, but it was blurry. It was blurry. Anyone that says the revelation of the Old Testament is clear is contradicting what the writers of the New Testament say about the inspired Old Testament. They believe the Old Testament was inspired by God, but they believed it was a blurred inspiration. And they said, you, but when you read the Old Testament through the lens of everything we know about Jesus, 
or even just through what we find out in Matthew about Jesus, the Old Testament comes alive. And instead of seeing uh, like God, angry God and nice God in this weird juxtaposition, you realize that Jesus illuminates a full picture of God. And you've got right there in the first chapter, the first couple of chapters of Genesis, you have God. You tell Adam and Eve, you know, don't eat. Hey, enjoy the garden. Take care of it. Give the animals some names. Enjoy all the fruit trees. Don't touch that tree. You'll surely die. And then you have Eve quoting God saying, yeah, we can't even touch it or he'll kill us. So we have the code. One important reason why there's so much blurriness in the Hebrew scriptures. And that said, God said this. And then the scriptures quote someone saying God said something different than he just said a few verses earlier. You have God saying this and then Eve adding to it. And there's a, there's a clue right there. If you read it, it's a narrative and not a proof text that Genesis doesn't comment when people are doing good and bad. A lot of people say, well, there's, there's a lot of polygamy in the Bible. I said, yeah, have you found a polygamous story that worked out in scripture? It's clearly, and then the Old Testament makes it clear. It says, you know, if you're going to lead people, be a, be a spouse of one person. Be a spouse of one person. Because, you know, too much drama otherwise. I mean, I can barely handle being married to one person. Mean it's so much spiritual formation that takes place. But people can say, well, it mentions it in the Old Testament. It does give commentary. So it's complicated. Let's say it's complicated. But in Matthew, we will receive so many tools to understand how to discern Jesus in the pages of the Old Testament. And uh, so the book of Genesis, you know what's great about the word Genesis? In Greek, it's a Greek word, it's what the Greeks called the book of Genesis, I forget the Hebrew term for it, in the Septuagint. And Genesis did not just mean beginning. It did not just mean origination. Genesis did not just mean genealogy. It also meant intrinsic nature. When Genesis is a word used regarding someone in the James, Jesus' little kid brother, uh, in his book writes, if someone's looking in a mirror and then they see their face and they look away and they forget who they are, that's what it's like someone that doesn't live out the scriptures and obey them. Basically saying, if you forget your, your true self, is your genesis, meaning your beginning, your story, the story that is meant to be told throughout your life is your genesis. So there, it's not just a cold genealogy. Genesis means story and identity as well. So something about the lineage of Jesus and all the scandal and brokenness and terrible things illuminates something about the nature of Jesus. And it illuminates that Jesus, God births beauty out of scandal. And God births beauty out of brokenness. And we're going to start out with the story of Abram, later Abraham, over the next few weeks. Because we find out Abraham is the last person you would ever want to marry your daughter. Uh, The guy was, a, was uh, in some ways a pathological liar. He was kind of generous to his nephew, but certainly not his wife. He definitely did not uh, care and cherish and love his wife, as later we would be admonished as husbands to, as Christ loves the church. 
His wife actually became the first person whose safety was to be sacrificed. We'll be going in that. Uh, uh, he almost the whole uh, uh, Arabic peoples descended from Ishmael would not even exist today if God had not intervened in Abraham abandoning his baby to starve in the desert with his mom. He would abandon. He and it says by faith. By faith in the faith chapter, not because he's a hero, but because, like, look how much the faithfulness of God was present in this guy's life. I mean, God was faithful to work with this person. I won't use pejorative language. I don't want all the judgment to come on me, too. But God's so faithful. The faithfulness of Jesus is so faithful that the story of Jesus was written in the story of Abraham. You know what that means for us? All of us have our secret shame list, or we're missing any form of empathy or compassion. You know, we either struggle one way or another, but if, does anyone here have shames, things they're embarrassed by? Anything have things that your spouse better not tell anyone else about? Anyone ever embarrassed to go get help for a problem? I mean, come on, listen, I, I, I'm running out of hands. I have to be an octopus to raise my hands on this. We are in good company. Because the whole genealogy of Christ is just a list of shame. And what the beautiful revelation of Jesus. Jesus says, behold, I make all things new. Paul later commented, you know, if you are anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. And this idea when Christ enters our life, we don't have to wait 21 plus generations for something good to come of our story. We don't have to wait 21 plus generations for something good to come to our story. You know, I've, I've, I've done some deep delves on genealogy stuff, and I've talked to uh, uh, Aunt Lynn, and I've got some things I'm really proud of in my genealogy. Like, I had a great-great-grandfather that was part of what became the Juneteenth celebrations, was one of the people that went and informed people, hey, the war's open, you're free. And was one of the announcements, like, proud of him. I have another relative that was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. I have, you know, I've got uh, some pretty bad scandal in my storyline. And even in a short amount of generations through Christ, I saw God bring a good thing. But the story of Jesus is you are adopted into a new family and the new generation of story begins right now with you. And even everything you've done all the scandalous of you is removed out of the shame category, kept in the story category. But in terms of shame, when you bring those issues up to God, he says, what are you talking about? We deleted that bit. We redacted that bit. And so friends, the story of Jesus in our lives isn't that we're morally superior, so it's our job to call out everyone else. The story of Jesus in our lives is God is living and active, and he's changed the storyline. And he has great penmanship, great story. God never tells a boring story. And, he, and as I tell, God never tells a story in a straight, linear line. None of us have had a straight, you know, I find Jesus, and then everything's peachy keen. Before Jesus is everything bad. If we're honest, God was at work in our life long before we acknowledged God was at work in our life. And post-Jesus, a lot of times, we've got low points in our life. And a lot of us have kind of a twisting, turning narrative. But that twisting, turning narrative forms a lot of scribbles 
that are kind of like one of those weird drawings with all the different color scribbles. And if you don't look, if you kind of just let yourself zone out on the drawing, you see a picture come out. You know what I'm talking about? Those were popular a few years back. The tangled stories of our lives when we just sit and cease from striving in the presence of God, the picture of Jesus can come through on it. When we stop trying and we spend time with the Lord, and I, I know so many of you gathered here today who live your shameless, and I can experience, I experience so much of Jesus through you. I just literally, for the first time today, talking to Adrian, she shared some with me. I found out someone I just, in our congregation, I look up to so much. And uh, uh, this person presumed I understood how self-loathing they were. I'm like, self-loathing? It's like, I sometimes feel bad because I'm not as good as this person. You know what I mean? And I realized, like, man, shame is real universal here. And I was like, I feel like I'm the eyes of God. It's like, I don't even have to zone out. I see God at work in this person's life so clearly. But when it comes to my own life, I've got to slow down and not hyper-focus on it and let the Holy Spirit bring the image of what God is doing. So today, let's stand. We're going to go through the book of Matthew because, A, God is rewriting all of our stories. B, this world is suffering and needs us to be the people with the relived stories. And C, we get to be a part of other people joining the end to shame, empowerment by conviction, power of the Spirit, to be healing hands in a world shot up. In the name of Jesus. If we could hold out our hands, I want to pray a blessing on you guys. Father God, the, these hands that might be ringing hands that ring, think about all the ways we haven't done it right, I pray they'd become healing hands. These hands that become protective hands, they would become hands that reach out. God, these hands would not be fists, but these hands would be precision surgical instruments to remove the cancer of shame by your power, Jesus Christ, and to uh, bring health and vitality. Father, I pray, God, that uh, you would give us a sense of deeper vocation to be healers, God. And I pray today there would be deliverance, God. In the name of Jesus, Father, I want you to put an oomph on people right now. If someone needs to receive prayer today, to receive a prayer of deliverance from shame, Father, just say yes to them. If that's them, God, if they need a prayer, Lord, say yes right now. We love you, Jesus. We, because your victory on the cross, you took on death, you took on shame, you took, down, you took on malice, you took everything on your shoulders, and you came back saying, love is victorious in my name. Lord Jesus, we entrust our lives to you. Jesus, our Lord, Savior, God, Father, friend, take over. Whatever our lives are and ain't, we give to you. Now, as we begin to worship, I just want to spend another moment of silence and ask the Lord to speak to you about uh, what you need from him right now and that we can begin by receiving prayer. Lord, Holy Spirit, I pray you would come. In the name of Jesus, I just rebuke any spirit of shame, embarrassment, 
image consciousness or self-protection in this room. In the name of Jesus, I rebuke the demonic work accomplished by shame and image consciousness in our congregation. Rather, give us, give us the spirit of the holy fool who lives with abandon, knowing we're beautiful in your eyes. Amen. So we have people who are going to be lining the walls in the front and the back to pray. If they could just kind of go there like the flash. And then, oh, communion. There it is. And the reason we do all this is because of the shed blood of Jesus and the broken body of Jesus for us. Jesus took Passover. Another part of the story of Israel and the Torah. He took Passover and... He said, I'm going to make this about all humankind, and it's all about love. It's not about escape from. It's an escape to a holy vocation of Christ-like people. Jesus said, uh, after he gave thanks, this, is, this bread is my body. It's broken for you. This cup is the new covenant. My blood spilled out for you. <laughs> Every time you eat this stuff, do it in remembrance of me.